When you think or hear the word revival, just think about what might be some of the first things that come to your mind when you think about revival. If you grew up in the South, um, I guess the South, but uh, I have this image always of, you know, the church that uh, the first or second week in October is when we have revival. And so the custodian goes out into the shed, pulls the banner out, paints over last year's date, and much to my shock, use probably a Sharpie and write the date on there, you know, and they paint the new date on there. And that's when we have revival, the second week of October. That's when we put in a reservation of the Holy Spirit to show up at Shot in the Arm Baptist Church in Dixie, North Carolina, or wherever. You know, you think that's, we're having revival week. Well, you know, that's not all there is to revival, but some of us who may have grew up in these uh, parts might have uh, that thought in that. But revival, uh, in American history, revivals have been very significant in the growth and the development uh, in our spiritual life and spiritual history in the United States of America. We uh, Historians, we uh, talk about the First Great Awakening, which was in the latter part of the 1700s. People like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and the nation was, you know, 13 states, and there was a tremendous spiritual revival that took place in that part, the First Great Awakening. And, uh, and uh, people like George Whitfield, who was a powerful preacher, and again, this was before uh, microphones and amplification systems and would preach to literally thousands on a weekly basis uh, and preach the gospel. In fact, the revival uh, with Whitfield, who was from England, uh, sparked the, uh, a, a big revival in 1739. He spent 45 days in America preaching in 45 towns from South Carolina to Maine, giving 97 sermons, and God showed up. God blessed, and God created a great stir there. Around the beginning of the 1800s, there was what they called the Second Great Awakening, and names like uh, Charles Finney and uh, different revivals that took place then. Uh, A lot of it took place in upstate New York, and there was a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, that was identified with that. There was a third great awakening more towards the middle part of, uh, to the latter part of the 1800s, and primarily uh, men like uh, Dwight L. Moody. You know, you're familiar with Moody Radio and Moody Bible Institute. Uh, The the radio station wasn't named after somebody that was just in a bad mood. Now, there was actually somebody by the name of Dwight L. Moody. And uh, he was uh, identified with much of the revival out of Chicago. And so, again, American history has benefited from some tremendous revivals. We go to the early 1900s. The uh, Pentecostal outpouring at Azusa Street in Los Angeles was a significant turning point and denominations like uh, the Church of God, Assembly of God, and some of our Pentecostal brothers uh, trace those roots to the uh, early 1900s of the Azusa Street Revival. In the 30s and 50s, we saw uh, evangelists and tent revivals, and people uh, people like Oral Roberts had a, had a great uh, uh, ministry during that period. When we come to the 60s, we saw uh, the beginnings of the early charismatic renewal 
revival that began with God touching the life of a man, uh, uh, an Episcopal uh, minister by the name of Dennis Bennett in Van Nuys, California. And God uh, just opened up his life, and out of, around the early 60s, uh, that began what we identified as kind of the charismatic renewal. And of course, that was the time in the 60s, very turbulent season in America with the, um, anybody remember the word hippie? <laughs> Some of you were hippies. Some of you still are hippies, all right? Uh, just say it. <laughs> uh, and so in the 60s, there was great uh, turmoil in our nation, but God had this mass revival. Uh, that was when folks like Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel, who just pastored a little church in Southern California, and God began just to use that little church to reach uh, young people, and all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of people uh, began to flock to that little church. Uh, and and when we come to the 80s and 90s, there's and again some of these terms you might not be familiar with, but it just trying to trace. And, uh, there was a movement they called the third wave, which was kind of built upon the renewal movement of the 60s and 70s. People like John Wimber, the Vineyard Movement, and some of you, Vineyard Music, all those things were birthed out of, again, uh, John Wimber was a part of Chuck Smith, and again, kind of just took it in a, another direction, not another direction, but just the Spirit of God ministered uh, primarily among uh, evangelicals, whereas the first charismatic renewal, we saw uh, Catholics and Methodists and Episcopalians, what they call those mainline denominations, and God began to pour out a spirit. As I said, uh, Dennis Bennett, who was a minister in Van Nuys, California, was an Episcopal uh, minister, and God just uh, ministered to him, and he became a catalyst for this uh, movement that took place. Does that mean everything that they did there was perfect? Of course not. You know why? Because you got human beings right? Nothing was perfect. But to deny that God did not have a a part in these various awakenings in our history is just foolish. I mean, he certainly did, and we certainly could go through a nitpick and be critical in every, uh, some parts of that. I thought of in 19, um, it was in 1957, on May 15th, Billy Graham held uh, a revival in New York City, and God just blew the place apart, and he held a revival every night at Madison Square Garden for 16 weeks in New York City in 1957. Two and a half million people attended, and over 61,000 people gave professions of faith in Christ. So regardless of what you hear, uh, God has moved significantly in our nation, and guess what? God is still moving significantly in our nation. You just have to make sure you're listening to the right people and reading the right stuff, right? And so revival is something we're going to look at from Jonah chapter 3 as we conclude this. And, of course, each uh, if you missed any of these, they're online, and uh, you can go back to the website and listen to that. I hope some of you are getting uh, the church app on your phone. You can, it's an easy way to access that. But Jonah is uh, the revival that took place in Nineveh, which was the capital of the nation of Assyria. It was the world power, the dominating power of that time, like a nation of Babylon. Assyria was the dominating power uh, that was controlling most of the activity in that part of the world. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And so that's why the city of Nineveh, and God told uh, Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, to go to Nineveh. And the evil is coming up before him. And so he gives that commission to Jonah to go and uh, preach to the city of Nineveh. Now, you know that uh, Jonah didn't do that. 
And we, uh, in chapter 1, was primarily God saying, I want you to go fight where Jonah was. I want you to go 500 miles north to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And Jonah went about 2,500 miles or attempted to go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He went down to the port of Joppa and uh, got on a ship that was on its way to Tarshish, uh, about as far as you could get. And uh, as you know, that uh, God disturbed his plans. Uh, God disturbed his plans in a great way. And so uh, God called and appointed a great fish, as we see at the end of chapter 1. And uh, Jonah spent chapter 2 that we looked at last week in the stomach of this great fish. It doesn't say a whale. Could have been, probably, who knows. But it was some great fish, and God appointed it. I believe in the historical... uh, Uh, truth of Jonah because Jesus believed in the historical truth of Jonah. You know, I'm kind of on his side. I figure he knows, right? In Matthew 12, he connected Jonah in the belly of the great fish for three days with his own resurrection as the Son of Man will be buried for three days and and, uh, be resurrected. So I don't think he would uh, connect his resurrection with fake news. Would you think that? No, I don't think so. So Jonah, we come to chapter 3, this morning we're going to talk about the revival, a great revival that took place in Nineveh as a result of Jonah finally getting his act together and obeying God. And talking about revival, and we're going to pray in just a moment, uh, I think it's good just to give, you know, there's lots of different definitions you can use for revival. Uh, one one that I just always comes to my mind is the manifest presence of God that that, that comes uh, and is a part of God's people. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a tremendous uh, English pastor, uh, probably many of you are not familiar with him, but uh, he has had great impact all over the world through his ministry, kind of like a Charles Spurgeon of the um, of his day. But Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, I enjoy reading a lot of his works, his commentaries, um, his series on Romans is fantastic. But he uh, was a pastor at the Westminster Chapel in London, and he, uh, again, was a very gifted pastor, a very gifted, doctrinally sound preacher, and he uh, defines the moving of the Spirit or revival as this, people uh, becoming aware of the presence and power of God in a manner that they have never known before. The Holy Spirit literally is providing among the meeting, directing the meeting, the gathering, taking charge of it, guiding them, and leading them. It's when God gets a hold of us and gets a hold of his people and his church and, and directs us in a way that is unplanned and unscripted. And so revival is something that is very much a part of God's work, and we will see, again, lessons from a great revival. I believe that our nation, and this isn't cliche, but I believe that our nation needs a revival. I mean, if God, listen, if there's hope for America, if there was hope for Nineveh, there's hope for America. And I believe our nation needs revival, and a revival among God's people. Uh, I believe our community, uh, Polk County, uh, our city, I believe we need revival uh, in our county, in our community. I believe our church needs revival. We need a fresh awakening of God's Spirit, but you know where it begins? I need revival. I need revival. I need to be a fresh reviving of God's presence in my life. And so this morning, I hope this word will encourage us not only as a church, but also as individuals. Let's pray 
and ask God's blessing on his word today. Father, we love you. What an awesome thing it is to come and set aside time where we uh, open the word of God to hear and set ourselves aside to hear God speak, to hear your voice. Not in some weird way, but God, you have given us a word uh, through these pages of uh, of this of this Bible and these uh, accounts, these stories that are ancient yet are very much alive today. You have inspired. You have breathed upon the word of this word that we say is the word of God. So let it be a word to us. Let us hear your voice today. Lord, I confess I am the least who is uh, able to stand before you. But Lord, my enablement doesn't come through training, through background. My enablement comes through a total, Lord, dependency that if you do not move through me, through my voice, by your spirit, Lord, this time will be absolutely worthless. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's look at four lessons this morning. It's not a real heavy message, but it'll kind of help us land the Jonah plane and uh, wrap this series up. And I hope you've enjoyed this, benefited. I have. That's the one great thing when you preach or teach. You're the one that benefits the greatest. So uh, thank you for coming back. So that's good, all right? So let's look at four lessons briefly this morning and talking specifically four lessons God teaches us concerning revival. Number one, revival is a sovereign act of God. Revival is a sovereign act of God. We think of Jonah as a whale of a story, a fish story. But you know what? The fish is a minor character. You know who the main person is, main character, if I could say that? God. This is a book about God. This is about God's dealings. I mean, think about it. Verse 1, chapter 1, God appointed a man, Jonah. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 2, chapter 1, God appointed a city. Why didn't he pick all the other cities? I don't know. He chose that city. And they weren't even Jewish. They weren't even Hebrews. They were pagans. But God appointed a city. He appointed uh, and prepared, it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, he appointed or prepared a great fish. Hey, Steve, fish, come here. I want you to go get this guy. He's flailing a little way. He's going to drown. I want you to swallow him. Don't eat him. Just kind of... Kind of let him be down there for a few days, and we'll, I'll, I'll let you know what we'll do after that. He appointed a great fish. Chapter 3, verse 2, he gave Jonah a message. He appointed the message of what uh, Jonah was to say to these people. He appointed grace to the people that heard the message and repented. Chapter 3, verse 10. He, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, and we'll talk about this in a minute. He appointed a plant. A plant. What's that got to do with anything? We'll talk about that. He appointed a worm. What do you mean a worm? Yeah, fish, worm. God appointed at that time for his use, and he appointed a scorching wind to work on Jonah. You see, God is active throughout this whole book. This is a book about God. And so the revival that takes place that we'll look at in a little more detail is begins and ends with God's purposes. That's why we say that revival is a sovereign act of God. It isn't something we do. Now, we certainly, and we'll see this, we certainly have a role in this, okay? Don't misunderstand me. 
but isn't something we cook up and design, and we say, if you follow these three methods, it guarantees God will respond, or God will do this. No, it's a sovereign act of God, where God in his mercy responds with his presence and moves among his people. Secondly, revival is not only a sovereign act of God, it is a merciful act of God. What a horrible thing if God never moved in our life. God is a God of mercy. How many of you have received that mercy? Good, good. Most of you have. Some of you are still not sure. But uh, it's a merciful act of God. God. God is not obligated. You hear me? God is not obligated to move, but it's a merciful act. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 6 and 8, just listen. You're familiar with these mostly. Is that, and we're calling the series The Gospel According to Jonah. Gospel means good news. Now, some churches you might go to, you might not know that it's good news. Hopefully, when you come to Grace Church, you know it's good news. It's not depressing news. It's not bad news. It's certainly not fake news. I've gotten that in twice. (laughs) Romans 5, you see, just the right time when we were still powerless, meaning without strength in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die because you made yourself worthy. You couldn't do anything. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, demonstrates, manifests, shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you think about Jonah, chapters 1 and 2 was God's mercy to Jonah. You know why the, we, we said uh, last week why that great fish swallowing Jonah was an act of mercy is because God didn't kill him for disobeying him, him rebelling. And he was a prophet of God. Chapters 1 and 2 is God's mercy to Jonah. Chapters 3 and 4 is God's mercy to Nineveh. It's about mercy. It's about grace. Titus 3.5 says that God saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. Psalm 100 verse 5, For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. Now look in your Bible at chapter 3 verse 1. God's mercy to Jonah Again, I like this, the the fish vomited him up, and we studied the Hebrew and determined that vomit means vomit, all right? So I just can't get around that, all right? So chapter 3, verse 1, some of you were looking for some deep theological nugget, there it is, all right? Then at chapter 3, verse 1, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You should mark your Bibles, okay? These pages, it's okay to write in it, all right? Because that's how you learn. And you should circle a second time. Aren't you glad God is the God of the second time, right? And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, you get the idea. But God's word, I love that. It's just kind of like, okay, rewind. Let's try this again, Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God gave Jonah a second opportunity. Why? Because Ephesians 2, 4 says, because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy. We're talking about revival as a merciful act of God. And even though I, you know, we certainly can attest and we believe how God is the God of the second chance, 
Third chance, fourth chance, we need to be careful that we never falsely presume that we can just run the red lights and God will never act in judgment. That's a danger. And if some people think, oh, you know, just grace, just, just grace, everything's grace. Yeah, grace. But grace is not a license to disobey the word of God, the law of God, okay? The law was not, couldn't save you, but it still is a standard by which reveals God's holiness. And so Ephesians 2, 4 talks about God being rich in mercy. I'm always reminded of Hebrews 4, 16, where it says, let us come boldly to what? The throne of grace. Yes, let us come boldly, boldly with confidence, the ESV says, but never forget it's to a throne that we come. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we need to speak that truth that God's word came a second time and we rejoice in God's wonderful mercy in our life, but yet it's to a throne that we come. Thirdly, revival is not only a sovereign act of God, it's a merciful act of God, but revival, and we're talking about revival here, and we're going to kind of zero in a little bit now on chapter 3, Revival is a result of the, to the obedience of God, is a result of obedience to God, okay? God moves sovereignly, yes, it's merciful, yes, but God responds to obedience. We may say God responds to faith. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God, all right? So if you believe that Jesus uh, is your Lord and Savior, you do that by faith, okay? And so obedience is, uh, that revival is a result of obedience to God. Now, these won't be on, your, on the screen here, but you can listen and hopefully uh, write some of these down. But there's five actions that we see here in chapter 3 that uh, kind of illustrate this and bring this out about how revival is a result of obedience to God. Number one is somebody's got to obey. Hello? Somebody's got to obey. Who, was, who, who obeyed here? Jonah finally obeyed. The, the, the prophet of God had obeyed what God originally told him to do. You know, we think, sometimes we think, you know, if just those heathens, those unbelievers would just obey and get their life right with God, but the Bible puts the emphasis upon God's people getting their life right. You know, we love to quote, and I understand it's for Israel, blah, blah, blah. I get all Second Chronicles 7.14. It wasn't written for the United States, but I believe it's true to any nation that would do this, okay? I, I get that. When it says, now listen to... Uh, where God puts the beginning of obedience, if my people, not if those guys, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn, repent from their uh, wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them of their sins and heal their land. But where does it begin? If my people. Where does obedience begin? If my people. It begins with us. We can yell about this and all that, but you know what? Obedience starts in God's house. And so somebody had to obey. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, God appointed the message. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, some estimate, you know, it was over 600, 700,000 people, massive territory. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, the word of the Lord was the same thing he told him to do. There's no change in God's plan. The change occurs in us. You know, it's like we pray. Pray isn't to wrestle God. And, you know, somebody said, I thought this was, this was and I understand what we use by this. They said, yeah, I'm just, you know, when I pray, I just, I just, I'm just wrestling with God. Well, I hope he won. I hope he won. But I know what we mean by that. But I thought that was funny. God had no change of plans. God's not going to alter. God is sovereign. He's going to keep his schedule. Jesus told his disciples, there's a day appointed for my return. There ain't nothing Kim Jong-un can do to thwart that or anybody else. Kings come and go. Remember Edi Amin? Gone. All right. I mean, they come and go. God still is ruling and reigning. God's plans never change, but Jonah's the one that had to change, not God's, uh, not God's plan. I love this. Notice the simple message of Jonah. Eight words, four in the Hebrew, simple words. As he walked around the city, his message was very simple. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He is every church member's dream of a pastor that can preach a sermon in eight words. He would be hired by just about every church, right? He preaches eight words every Sunday. We're in and out. We're not even there 20 minutes and we're gone. You laugh. You laugh, but you know it's true. Verse 5 of Jonah 3, and the people, what happened? How did they respond to those eight words? They believed God. That's not the way we would do it, right? Because if we were going to plan and strategize a revival in Nineveh, we would have to put together a committee for a Nineveh for, Nineveh for Jesus campaign. And we would have to hire an advanced team. We'd have to get some public relations folks. Uh, we'd put together a big ad uh, branding campaign with a good logo, buy billboards, do a social media blitz, right? You know, Twitter, Facebook, kind of get all that going. And uh, we'd definitely have to have some T-shirts because, you know, Christians can't do anything without T-shirts and some logo or saying on it. And so we got to get the T-shirts, and we'll come up with some cool slogans and uh, get some coffee cups and mugs. And, you know, we'll just – and, you know, we basically got to raise about $3 bucks, Lord, before we can have an effective campaign in Nineveh. Eight words. Why eight words? You know who the advance team was? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was the advance team, preparing hearts. And I tell you, when, and as we learned on, on Wednesday, and some of you uh, missed out, but remember we talked about the gardeners and the harvesters. We read it just kind of at the harvesting stage. But God had been gardening, I believe, Nineveh for a long time in preparing them. And when the harvest is ripe, 
You just put the basket under the fruit tree and just practically falls in the basket. Why? Because it's ready. It's ripe. It's ready. Jonah just could show up, speak these eight words, and guess what? A city, a city obeyed God. Secondly, not only must there be obedience, but there needs to be humility. Verse 6, again, and the word of the word reached the king of Nineveh. And it says that he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And that was kind of an ancient sign of mourning, ashes, a sign of repentance. Uh, the humility, I mean, the king of Nineveh, the, the Assyrian king, responded to this message. I mean, this is a massive miracle. I read to you some revivals. This is, that's nothing compared to what God does in this ancient city. The king responds with humility. John MacArthur says, pagan sailors in a pagan city responded to the reluctant prophet showing the power of God in spite of of the rebellion of his servant. Do you hear what I'm saying? God can even take a rebellious, unwilling prophet, and God still is going to do what he's going to do. In Galatians uh, 1, I believe, no, Philippians 1, don't turn to it, but I thought about this when Paul is in jail, and he's lamenting about how how there are those who are kind of taking advantage of him being in jail, and they're out preaching the gospel. And Paul says, leave them alone. They're preaching the gospel, even though they're kind of doing it out of poor motives. He says, leave them alone. So that reminds us that even though somebody can have bad motives, as long as they're speaking the truth, God can use them, but the Bible never sanctions Someone with good motives speaking falsehood is something God can bless. There is a difference. Obedience, humility. Also, verse 7, there was fasting. And the king issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beasts, herd, nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. This is serious. I mean, when there's a fast, he says, look, dogs, cats, gerbils, nobody's eating. This is a citywide fast. That's from the message translation. Got the word gerbil out of the Hebrew. Um, what is fasting? Sometimes, you know, Jesus talks about fasting in Matthew 6. He says, when you fast, he assumes that his followers will fast as part of their disciplines, prayer. He assumes that when he says, when you fast. He says, just don't be like the, the hypocrites that are really always trying to show off. He says, but when you fast, so he assumes that followers of him uh, will, will fast as part of what really fasting is, that time of, of self-denial of one of the most critical things is, is food. And uh, I won't elaborate, David, but that fasting you had to go through the last couple of days, something he and I know what's going on there. You know, that man's been, when he got out of that fast, well, I shouldn't say that, but he has been eating like crazy because, man, and you know when you're, maybe not crazy. He's, he's, all right, there you go. Isn't it amazing when you fast, if you've ever fasted as part of 
of a time of worship and prayer before the Lord, you think about foods that you would never consider. <laughs> I better not start naming them because it's too close for lunch. You're like, you know, that actually sounds good right now. Um, but the king decreed a fast. He says, look, this is not just some, this is serious. We are, gonna, we are, we are going to... We are going to get serious in this humility and repentance before, uh, before God. Fasting, my friends, is not going on a hunger strike to make God get, you, get him to do something you want. Hello? God, I'm just going to starve until you, until you do this. God's like, we'll see you soon. Obedience, humility, fasting. These are patterns that I think are applicable to every, any revival. And fourthly, what did they do? Verse 8, first part of verse 8, they prayed. That's a good thing to do in revival, isn't it? They prayed. But the king says, but to let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. He issued a call to prayer. And fifth, Repentance. They did all that except repentance. It would have been a big waste. Verse 8, also the latter part. The king says, the king, not the prophet, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That's what repentance is. It's a turning. Peter on the Pentecost day of uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 At the conclusion of this message, the people called out and said, what must we do? He laid it all out there. They said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent. Turn from your evil and turn to God. Paul commended the Thessalonians, and I like the language here because it helps us understand this, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, when he says, and he's commending them, he says, for not only has the word, he's talking to the Thessalonians, verse 8 and 9, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and he goes down to verse 9, of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. It's turning from your direction and turning in God's direction. A good friend of mine years ago was an elder at a church I pastored, uh, Dennis Newell. And I never forget a story he told that when he came to faith in Christ, it was such a, it was just, such a liberating time. And he says the next morning when he got up, uh, he had a van, always drove a van, and he had a business. And he says when he went out to the van, he got in that, that uh, van on the first day of this newfound joy of being a believer. He said he got in the van, and he just felt led of the Spirit that he said there was always a, a, a way he went to work. You know, same road, same path, did it for whatever, 20 years. He said, but that day is just something that was meant something to him. So he said he decided from that day forward he would take a different way to work. It's just a daily reminder that my life has turned. I'm going a different way. I'm following God. Repentance. Repentance is key. Verse 10, chapter 3, Jonah. When God saw 
when God saw, because we're talking about revival is a result of obedience to God. There was five things there they did, and God saw that, and he saw the genuineness and the sincerity. This wasn't just some... Uh, you know, just some religious uh, thing they were into. He saw the genuineness of how they turned from their evil way. Interesting, what he saw was how they turned from their evil way. What did he see? He saw their heart that had turned from their evil way. He didn't say that he saw their fasting. He saw their humility. He saw their prayer. What did he see? He saw the heart turn from Rebellion to God, to him. And it says that God relented of the disaster. Your King James may say God repented. Both of those are not helpful. It's, it's just language that when it says God repented or God relented or God changed his mind of the disaster, that what he said he would do to them, he did not. It, it's trying to take the language and, and actions of the infinite holy God and put it down into words and phrases that teeny little human beings could understand. Imagine this. Remember ant farms? You'd always see an advertisement in the back of... Now I'm going to give too much away. Huh? Oh, oh, okay. I was going to say Mad Magazine. That was more of my reading habits back then. Uh, You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know... What am I trying to say? Comic books. Couldn't say it. You know, an ant farm. And my mother would never let me or get one of those because of any fear of any parent of those ants. Just And living in Florida, my house is surrounded by ant ranches, actually, you know. And they appear after every rain. They, they have a new franchise they're opening up. And so, but imagine human beings, me, and I see this mound of, you know, that, that dirt that just seems to come over overnight. You know what I'm talking about? Just seems, and, and all of a sudden, I'm going to communicate to these ants, me, some things I want to tell them. I don't like the way they need to go to my neighbors and do this, right? And, and I want to communicate to them, I don't know how you do that. That may sound silly, but how does an infinite God talk to creatures? And so what does he do? He is confined to language that we get. So when it says God relented, God repented, God changed his mind, that's the way it seems from our perspective. Let me tell you something. God has known what he's going to do from I should say the beginning of eternity, but there is no beginning of eternity. God's plans have never been thwarted. From our perspective, we see it maybe as a change. But we're little ants fighting for a king of the hill in our dirt. And the infinite holy God is trying to give us some understanding. Does that make sense of that? All right, that's a, you can read eight volumes of explanation of that. But that to me was helpful. But what did God do? Bottom line is, God did not destroy them. Why? Because they responded to him. What a great thing. Revival is a sovereign act of God. It's a merciful act of God. It's a result of obedience to God. But fourth and last observation is that revival is not experienced by those who are distracted. You would think that Jonah would be one of the most excited people over what happened 
in this great city, almost a million people. You would think he would be ecstatic. What does chapter 4 verse 1 say? It says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? He was displeased. He was just plain old ticked off. Because he said, God, I I knew you would do this. You're a merciful God, and I knew if I went there, this is what you'd do. What distracted Jonah? Again, you're just going to have to listen. Jonah was distracted by a limited view of God. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? See, he doesn't even want to identify with these people. He's still dealing with this dislike. He said, is this not what I said? That is why I made haste, or I quickly fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God, I know all about this grace thing. I just hate these people. And look at what we got now. We got to live with them for eternity. Listen, if your theology makes you angry, you need to get a different kind of theology. If your theology does not foster a warm compassion for lost people, you need to trade in those books and get back to the Word of God. Because God is a compassionate God. He is a sovereign God, but He's a compassionate God. I think about when Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, and it says in, um, of how He had compassion. He looked out over the city, and He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And it says He was moved with compassion. We're going to have a training about Sharing the gospel about Muslims. Eh, you know, I'm not really into that. But what if God wasn't into you and bypassed you? What if he said, I'm just not into you, Frank. Hasta la vista, baby. Not into you. I'm going to do something. He's a compassionate God. We don't share and talk about Jesus as some guilt and fear and compulsion. We do it because, you know, to whom much has been given, what? Yeah. Paul said in Romans 9, what shall we say then? Talking about God. God said, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jesus said in John 3, he said, the spirit of God moving is like the wind. It's unpredictable. The minute you say God can't do nothing over there, the wind's already there. Holy Spirit moves like the wind. You can't box them in. You can't nail it down. You can't write enough books to say, this is the way the Spirit of God must move at all times in every way. As soon as you do that, God says, I've already got 10 chapters of stuff that you don't even have in there. Spirit of God's like the wind. You can't just nail it down. God is going to do what he wants to do. But Jonah was distracted because he had a limited view of God. He just couldn't put that in his blender. Secondly, Jonah was distracted 
by his own personal selfishness. Jonah 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, this is Jonah talking, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. I wanted to say, God, I mean, I wanted to say, Jonah, you pulling the death card again? Really? I mean, didn't we hear that before when he said, it just throw me overboard? He didn't call out to the Lord when, until he was swallowed up by that great fish. Me, I remember one time I was in Jamaica on a missions trip. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but we actually were in Jamaica doing missions work, right? And I remember I swam out a little further than I should have gone. <laughs> that sandbar was a little further out, and this fat boy just thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And I was in trouble. It didn't help that my mother told me, I just have a feeling something bad's going to happen when you're in Jamaica. <laughs> How many of you got mamas that did stuff like that? That didn't help. The Lord says, you know what to do. Just get on your back and float your way back in. Because I was tired. So obviously I did that and I'm here, so it all worked out for good, right? But he was distracted by his own personal selfishness. Look at this. Uh, there's a lot of people that change. There's a lot of things that change here. The, the pagan sailors changed. They called out to the Yahweh, covenant God. They changed. The people of Nineveh, they changed. The king, he changed. Guess who didn't change? Jonah. He still says, God, just kill me. Because I'd rather die than be a part of what you're doing. You wonder why God didn't take him up on that. Thirdly, not only was Jonah distracted by a limited view of God, his own personal selfishness, but Jonah was distracted by personal satisfaction. Look at this. Verse 5 and 6, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city He made a little booth for himself there, a little shelter. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see, or he should see, what would become of the city. Think about that. He's like, you know, God is just, he's just waiting for that that mushroom cloud to come up over the city. That's what he wants. By the way, something I missed earlier, that message that he went into Jonah, which was a message of judgment. Now, it does say the Lord And that was a part of the message. But I kind of feel like he really relished that message because that's really all he was into was the judgment part. You know, he was okay with judgment. He just didn't like the fact that they responded in a a repentant way. So he sat under the shade to see what would become of the city. Surely now God's going to blow them apart. But verse 6, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant. If you have an old King James, it may say gourd. Uh, That's a particular type of plant. I won't get into that, but it was a plant. And he made it to come up over Jonah because it was hot, the sun, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, isn't that nice of God to do that? And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Back in verse 3, he's ready to die. And here now he's exceedingly glad God blessed him, but instead of the blessings being something that he turns and gives thanks and praise to God, they became a distraction. 
That's what can happen with God's people is our abundance and our blessings. Instead of us turning and being thankful to God, they become distractions from us doing and obeying the will of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, before Moses, remember Moses couldn't enter into the promised land. God judged him because of his anger at striking that rock for water. Remember that? And so Moses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, if you laid it out, it essentially is Moses's, it's his last, his swan song message, his last sermon before the people of Israel, and it pretty much lays out the Ten Commandments. That was his last message. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he gives this warning. He says, be careful. In fact, he says, remember not to forget when you come into the land, and I'm paraphrasing, everything is abundance and wonderful and milk and honey, and, and, and you just have your fill of everything, remember not to forget me, God. Because we do that, don't we? Panic and crisis. Ignore God when things are going well. That's just our nature. Here, God raises up this little plant, becomes big enough to shade him and make him comfortable, and Jonah's really excited. You know what these are doing? These are revealing the heart condition of this man, and maybe it reveals the heart condition of me and you. Haggai, another prophet, rebuked his own people because they were living in wonderful paneled homes. That's the term, a paneled home, but wonderful homes. And the temple had not been finished. Living in their comfort became a distraction. Is God against comfort and, dis- and, and blessing? Of course not. Unless it distracts us. Jonah was more joyful and happy over that plant to shade him than an entire city that came to God. Isn't that terrible? What does that tell you about the heart? He was more, it says he was exceedingly glad of this plant, this shade. But when it came to a whole city giving their life to God, all he could do is just wish himself dead. And last, Jonah was distracted by personal discomfort. Look at this, verse 7 through 11. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there it is again, God appointed a worm. He can appoint big fish, and he can appoint, uh, can appoint a little worm. And he appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed, there it is again, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. There it is three times. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. How would you like to go to a church where the pastor preached at least three messages a year of how he wanted to die? Right? But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes. Yes, God, I'm justified to be angry. Angry enough to die, God. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't do anything to make it happen. You didn't even make it grow. And it came into being in a night and perished in a night. He says, you pitied that little plant. He said, should I not pity, or we would say have compassion on Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. I believe this is referring to children, 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What's he saying? He's saying, Jonah, you, you get upset and moved and over, over when your, your personal discomfort is, is removed and that excites you and gets you more upset and you are uh, languishing over the loss of that little plant and that tree that gave you shade. How much more should I not have pity and, and be moved over? Let's just forget those adults that we don't like. What about the children? Does that move you? Does that move you? What about the waste of cattle and animals, Joan? I mean, I mean, really? I'm almost done, but it's either get finished today or next week, but I'm going to finish it today, so... I don't usually go too too long, but you just strap in. I want to finish this. One writer noted this, and I thought this was so good, it's worth sharing, of how that little interaction there was a revealing and a demonstration of God's free grace. Listen to what he says. Don't go to sleep. Don't check out. Be engaged. It's not going to kill you to listen, all right? might kill you Someday, but not today. The Lord first showed Jonah what his grace is all about. He says in verse 10, You have been concerned about this vine that you did not tend or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. The vine was a free gift. When God removed it, he simply and unmistakably underlined that fact. God gave it, God removed it. But Jonah acted as if God owed him the vine. And that is the proof that he did not receive it in the first place as a gift of God's wonderful grace, freely given by the giver and wholly unmerited in the recipient. The vine, this plant, therefore preached grace to ungracious Jonah. Jonah had been pleased and happy with his little tree, his little vine. He loved the comfort afforded by that vine rather than the grace that raised it up to shade him from the sun. It was his plant, his vine. And because he felt that way, he felt wronged by God when it was taken away. Here then is the simple test that we can all apply to our own lives, a test that will tell us how much we really recognize the grace of God for what it is, how do we react to gifts and benefits in our life, both when they are given and when they are removed? God can control the wind and waves. He controlled the fish. He controlled the plant. He controlled the worm. He controlled the Scorching wind, but he couldn't control this rebellious prophet to surrender. Warren Wiersbe says, everything in nature obeys the word of God except human beings, and human beings have the greatest reason to obey. You know what's interesting about chapter 4 of Jonah is it really just, it just kind of stops, just kind of, Stops midair. 
It doesn't kind of wrap all things up. And, you know, Jonah went and got a church and pastored for 20 years. And then, you know, just... And I think one of the reasons is it ends is because it leaves the question open that you and I have to continually ask about this God of a second chance, that we have to continually evaluate our own heart and say, where am I? Where's my real heart? Where's my compassion? Where's my... What distracts me? What distracts me from showing the love of Christ to those that do not know Him? And so it just kind of leaves it open for... For us to write the ending. You see, the moment that city, that pagan city, heard that message, at least, you know, we have to assume a lot in the white space of the verses. But what the Holy Spirit wanted us to hear was the immediacy of how they responded. The immediacy of how they responded. They believed it. They were really evil, no doubt about that. They were wicked, evil people. But once they respond, you know, God doesn't have problems with the Ninevites. You know who he has problems with? Jonah. The problem with the world is not the world. They're just doing what they do. The problem with the world is the church. And who's the church? It's you and me. God's greatest problem is not the sinner out there. His greatest problem is the saint in here. So how compassionate are we for the loss? You say, well, I can't do anything. I'm just, I mean, I, some of you may know this, and I think it's always a good reminder. I always think about a Sunday school teacher in Boston, probably early, mid-1800s. And one day, God put on his heart to share the gospel with one of his teenagers that was in his Sunday school. So he went to where young Dwight was to share the gospel. And this young man, Dwight, gave his life to the Lord. The Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, doesn't have anything named after him, as far as I know. But he just was obedient in telling this little boy, young man, about Jesus. And little Dwight responded. Well, little Dwight grew up to be big Dwight and Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist. And God used him, as I said earlier, in tremendous outpouring in Chicago and really all over the world. And in one of his meetings, a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman gave his life to Christ. Wilbur Chapman went on to become an evangelist and have his own meetings across uh, the United States and And a baseball player came to the altar one night and gave his life to Jesus. And Billy Sunday, who would later become an evangelist and give up his baseball career to preach the gospel, himself would would establish a wide evangelistic ministry throughout the nation. As he was preaching one night, um, a young man came to uh, a revival that he was holding and by the name of Mordecai Ham and and he was saved in this revival of Billy Sunday. And, and as you would know, Mordecai Ham became a, an evangelist. And he began to go and travel and preach 
all over the nation, around the world. And one night, Mordecai Ham had a series of meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a uh, young man again by the name of Billy Frank had heard about some of the stuff that was going on there and decided he'd go check it out. And he went one night and heard him preach and thought, well, I might go the next night. And he went back the next night in this tent revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Mordecai Ham was preaching, and Billy Frank gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, Billy Frank, as we would know him more as Billy Graham. Where did it begin? A Sunday school teacher did what? Told a kid about Jesus. And God can take care of the rest. Let's pray.